You are listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast, a place to grow, learn, and be inspired as you discover God's purpose for your life. Here's your host, the pastor you've always wanted without the church, Dr. Kumar Dixit. Well, 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 welcome back to another episode. Hope things have been going well in your life. You know, it's been fun this third season to be interviewing such interesting people with such great stories in their life. And one of the people I want to introduce you to is Randy Robertson, who um, someone that I've known probably for about four or five years, but really got to know um, recently when we spent some time together in Florida. Randy, welcome to the show. Oh, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here, Kumar. Looking forward to chatting some more and uh, sharing my story some. Yeah. So, you know, Randy, um, you transitioned from most of your life being a, a cis male to now being a woman. And before we even talk about how that happened and where kind of the, the story that led up to that, um, one of the things that I want to know is you seem and th- and this may be just total stereotyping but you know you have military background you're an airplane pilot you know like you're like a dude's dude you know <laughs> you have better male credentials than i do okay <laughs> so it's kind of like when you were a man were you a dude's dude so, you know, you know, you say I live most of my life with the world seeing me as a cisgender heterosexual man. Mm. I've lived all of my life for the viable memory portion mm-hmm. as a trans person. Wow. So as a transgender girl and and then as a transgender teenage girl and you know or at least wanting to be able to have that journey um so yeah i did transition late in life as the terminology goes even though mm. i find that terminology less than awesome it's what's used and so i i accept it yeah but was i perceived as a as a dude's dude i don't know i think at different times in life i probably was you know, my high school friends that I have confidence in what they tell me, I probably wasn't perceived completely as a dude's dude. I was always perceived as having a gentle personality, being kind, and I, I was never in the A strata. I had friends all across the strata of my social group uh, or my my school age group. By the same token, there's a lot of things that I've done that are very, very much the, you know, the the super 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 guy kinds of activities and some of that was just part of the uh journey of trying to sort out how to manage um who i knew i was and the elements of the community that i grew up in that Mm -hmm. would have seen that as very problematic yeah and i think it's interesting that you know how you clarified like what i think of as you growing up as a man uh, a boy and a man, but in your in your brain and in in your world, you were growing up as a a girl and a woman. We were just seeing something different as far as what the exterior was looking like at the time. I was growing up wanting to be able to have the experience growing up as a girl and a woman, but the world offered me um, the experience of growing up male. 
Mm-hmm. And so I've always lived kind of in a middle ground, even though many people may not have, have understood that. So let's go backwards. When did you start transitioning? Ooh, that's, you know, that's an interesting question. I can go back to when I first came out, and I guess that may be the gate where the gate opens, and that's all the way back in 2006. Okay, so I wasn't a kid even then, but yeah, I was gonna say um, you're you're like all the way back in 2006. That seems like just last week to me. So I was still in the Air Force, and I knew my career would be in jeopardy if I did anything substantive. So I, I started physically transitioning in 2012. So I'm I'm right at the 10 year mark in the process. Can you tell me a little bit about um, coming out story? Sure. So the coming out story, like I said, starts in 2006. My last assignment in the Air Force moved us from Georgia to the Washington, D.C. area. I got assigned to the Pentagon. And uh, in the course of this very, very quick turn move, we hadn't sold our house. So we lived in my brother's basement for like eight months and inhabited that, that basement. My spouse went back to to Georgia as we were trying to get the house and all that wrapped up there. And in doing that, she found my collection of clothing and accessories by accident, completely by accident. And when she got back to Maryland a few days later, we had a, a very, very long conversation on the first, actually, it was a Sabbath after that. Did your heart just drop when you realized that she knew? Yeah. Yeah, it it did. It was one of those things where when she said what she said on the phone, and she didn't tell me on the phone when she said what she said on the phone, we need to talk when we get back. I knew exactly what that conversation was going to be. Hmm. So you, you had been secretly dressing. I don't know if I should say call it cross-dressing because I'm not sure if that's really what it's what, what it's considered, but you were dressing as a woman in secret. Is that right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I've been doing that since elementary school. Okay. <laughs> so mm-hmm. wow. that was nothing new. It's just at that point, you know, in elementary school, I have a sister who's older, a couple of years older, and one who's a couple of years younger. I had, had, I had resources. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And, you know, by this point, I had resources and I had actually acquired, not a huge, but I'd acquired, you know, at least several outfits worth of clothing and had shoes and purse and all the things that you need to to get around in life as a woman. So what size, um, what size shoe do you wear, by the way? I wear a woman's 10 or 10 and a half. Okay. Okay. So that's still pretty hard to find. Yeah, it can be. 10 is about where I'm at. Okay. You get above 10 and it gets really hard. So were you just dressing in secret, like at home, or were you dressing out in public? So most of the time it was in secret at home. Mm -hmm. But when my spouse and children would be out of town, when I had the the house and the time and the space, I would I would make myself up and mostly I would just drive around in the car. <laughs> okay. I didn't really go out out, but I went out, right? Yeah. In that I, I went out in the car and 
and would drive around. And, and there were maybe a, there was a, a time or two where I, I went in, you know, got out of the car, I put gas in the car, some, some things like that. But mm-hmm. for the most part, no, I didn't go out into, into sh- shops and stores. I mean, while I was in the military, you know, that was a potential. You could run into a colleague and, and then that could lead to a, a major league, you know, career disaster, which I couldn't afford. And it certainly would have been a disaster at home. So, you know, I exercised. What I felt was reasonable caution looking back. I'm not sure that it was always that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I can't even imagine the anxiety that you were holding when you were at home dressed like this and fearful that anybody was going to walk in at any time. So, so most of the time I was pretty strategic about that. Certainly by the time I was an adult, I was I was quite careful about, mm-hmm. about that. You know, as a younger person... You could say, by the grace of God, I never actually got caught, but yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. <laughs> I came really close a couple times. <laughs> so tell me what happened. Like after your wife kind of finds out and exposes you, like what was the impact on your family, on on you? She's aware of where I'm at in my Air Force career, and she's as aware of the consequences as I am because I, you know, I informed her of that. So fundamentally, I just drug her into the closet with me until my until I retired from the Air Force, okay. which was several years later. Uh, you know, and she gave me enough leash at that point to survive. After I retired from the Air Force, she promptly said, "You need to go get some help." So I found a wonderful therapist. She's an Indian, by the way. Hmm. Um, that's, that's why she's wonderful. And certainly was one of them. <laughs> and, you know, pretty quickly she she's like, yeah, you're a you're a transgender person. That's this is not a hard diagnosis. After a, a fairly brief uh, amount of therapy, she said, you know, you've got to make some choices. And they're they're just choices you're gonna to have to make about how you're gonna to relate to this and and manage life. And I'm here to help if you need, but what you feel is that you have to do to survive and be fully yourself and productive. And after that, I got a spiritual advisor, talked with him and worked through some things and then made the choice that I really needed to move forward uh, in order to maintain my own sanity and my own functionality. And this would have been 2000, late spring of 2011. I started the process of actively coming out to my immediate family. So my three siblings, a brother, two sisters, um, my children, and then my parents. Okay. So before um, we go there, cause that's, that sounds, I need to add like some dramatic music and pause right now, or be like <laughs> after the commercial, cause this is going to get good. How, how do you know, Randy, or how did you know that you're not gay as compared to being queer, femme, um, femme gay, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different, you know, letters that we can attribute, but how do you know that you're not gay? Um, what was that process to kind of know that difference? So I, you know, honestly, I, 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 I don't, I don't know how to describe that. The reality is, is, you know, as a, as somewhere, you know, between six and nine years old, I just knew what I, what my brain said I was supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and that was a girl that was, that was my reality. It wasn't like, wasn't like anywhere along the line. I finally, I, I settled on this or that or the other. This was yeah. just who I was in my head. And the battle of, of sorting through what that meant 
And then within the context of the community and the circumstances of my growing up, which in, in large part was actually wonderfully supportive in many ways, but nobody knew. And, and then through the church experience and and sorting through all of that and sorting through a relationship with God and, and trying to sort out scripture and, and how I could come to a uh, an understanding, you know, and my understanding of who I was and what the science was or what the, certainly what the knowledge within the, the, the broader world was grew over time. And yeah, I think, you know. I think one of the key things, and I want my listener to um, be cognizant of this is that the difference is not who you are attracted to, but who you are that's who I went to bed as it's who I went, yeah. who I got up as. Yeah. And, and I guess you could say it still is that I just, it just all matches now. And so when people, you know, ask that question, you know, why aren't you just gay? It's because the gay orientation is having to do with what you're attracted to, not necessarily what your brain is telling you who you are. Yeah, exactly. And I don't even really know how to describe, you know, who I'm attracted to. I'm mm-hmm. I've been married to the same woman for over 38 years by the same token. I find at times, I mean, by, I don't know if that's really descriptive, but mm-hmm. I'm happy in a relationship. I'm not shopping. So, yeah. You know, it's hard it's hard to venture down that road to go, who who do I really want to go and be with? Right. I'm already with the person I want to be with. Yeah, yeah, you're with your life partner. Right? right, and she she happens to be a woman. Yeah, yeah. So let's get, let's get back to the juicy part. How in the world did your parents handle this um and and your siblings? So I I told my brother first cuz he lived nearby. And my spouse was, was when when we when we broke the news to them and they were like we had planned it around a going out to eat event. So we told them, so we told them at their house before we went, we got done telling them and, and they're like, okay, all right. And then it was like, okay, well, let's go eat. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and so we went out and, and ate dinner. And then I told my two sisters, interestingly enough, my, my two sisters, I think, their initial responses, particularly my older sister, who's, um, <laughs> she was she was very taken aback, but everybody was kind and loving and supporting. And as I told my siblings before my parents, and they all had phone conversations without my knowledge, and and they informed <laughs> me about the the architecture of telling mom and dad. Uh huh. So ultimately, I did that over the phone, and that was at their behest, and probably a good choice. Yeah. In the end, but the first response, the very first response of my parents, kind of at the very fundamental level, was, "You know, we will always love you, mm. and that you're always welcome in our home." Wow, that makes me want to cry. I, I, um, what, a, what a blessing to have your parents say that to you. Yeah. Now, okay, to say they haven't had their struggles with some of this is, is an understatement, but that yeah. that is there, and that's my parents, right? Yeah. That's truly who my parents are. And by the time I told them, I had high level of confidence that that was the kind of response I would get. Wow. Wow. What about your children? How many kids do you have? I have two and we have a daughter and a son. They're grown. I'll spare them their age, but they are well into the young adult category at this point. But they were teenagers at the time, living in Maryland at the time. Both of them were in high school. 
my brother had a wonderful lake house down in Northern Virginia. And we, we spent many, many, many wonderful weekends down there. Uh, and so we went down on one weekend and on one Saturday morning, sitting down on the dock, uh, the four of us, my spouse and our two kids, I had that conversation. They were, they were like, Oh, wow. You know, we had always raised our kids to accept other people. So although it was, I'm sure a stark reality they were like, Oh my, what does this really mean? We kept the channels of communication open and, and made sure that we went back and actively worked to make sure they were okay. We created a resource network with uncles and aunts and cousins who all knew, most of whom were older. So they at least had places to go and talk that they knew were safe. There, there's one thing to say you're transgender and for people to kind of get their mind around that. There's another thing to like make, start making the physical transformation. You know, once you started, you know, dressing in dresses and, you know, you having long hair and wearing earrings and having makeup and lipstick, how, how did that, that physical change alter any of the relationships with your children or siblings when they actually saw who you are? You know, it was an evolution, not a revolution, you know, <laughs> you know, physical changes with, with hormone replacement therapy, HRT being the, the short thing that we all call it in, in the trans world. Uh, and HRT the T being a broad thing in the healthcare world, right? This is not, this is not just a trans thing. Yeah. Uh, hormones are, are really powerful. So it's evolutionary, right? Physical changes to my person and my body evolved, right? So just like puberty 2.0, mm -hmm. right? And and what uh, I've I've had I've had trans people say it's the worst because you're going through it two times in your life and you're it's such an altercation in in not just physically but emotionally and mentally. So for me, I would say that the greatest benefit of HRT was was between my ears. I mean, you know, and that may sound crazy, but to some people, but it's it is the truth. So so it was a slow evolution. Family members had seen the progression that occurred as I started to grow my hair out. I, you know, I started shaving my legs and doing some of those things. Body hair starts to go away, breasts start to form, all those kinds of things. There are a couple of pictures that I look back and are rather humorous that I don't share with the world. <laughs> Ultimately, my family was really introduced to me in the persona that you see me today on a family cruise. And everybody knew this is what was going to happen, right? So this mm -hmm. is not like it was thrown shock to anyone that this was going to happen. Yeah. In the early summer of 2015, flew out to Seattle. And that's when everybody saw me in person for the first mm -hmm. time. I am curious. I've met your wife on a couple of occasions and she's delightful. You know, she's had a probably a good 15 or 16 years to process this, right? But at the same time, one of the questions I I wonder is, did she feel betrayed? Was she angry? Did she ever kind of just go, you know what, I'm about to like torch all your stuff on the front, front lawn? If she did, she never said that. Okay. But I can tell you, it's not an easy journey for family. If family... And, and I would hope family does, but if family chooses to come along uh, with and walk with a trans person through this 
phase of life, they get a transition to it's different, but they get a transition to it's a process. Mm -hmm. She would tell you that at times it felt like she was watching me die. Uh, the person that she knew as a physical presence was evaporating before her, right? Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a, a death and dying experience. Yet at the same time, I was fully present. Right. That's really challenging. Yeah, um, it, it's, a gr it's a grief process where you are literally watching a metamorphosis take place, and that involves the death of what you once knew. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, it recrafts who we are as a couple, probably less between the two of us than most people would, would think. But to the world, it, you know, rewrites the script in totality. Did you lose friends over this? You know, I, I'm sure that I have lost some friends, but you know what? No one that was really close. That's amazing. I was part of a, a presentation in the audience when you you gave a presentation of kind of the do's and don'ts of what to ask a trans person. <laughs> and I took copious notes and I was like, well, you just added all the don'ts on all the questions I'm dying to know, you know, so, <laughs> but, um, you know, my, my wife will often say, think it, don't say it, right? So the, the, the do's and don't questions are, or the don't questions are, you know, some of those are, are just, are they questions that you would ask somebody else, right? Yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, would would you ask your cis colleague, cisgender colleague yeah. X about a relationship or something else? And if the answer is no, don't, don't ask your trans colleague the same kind of thing. Yeah. That said, in the context of an interview or a conversation like we're having at some level, I'm comfortable with offering somewhat wider latitude than yeah. what I would suggest somebody does in a social kind of a setting. Ideally, this is educational. Yeah. So what are some of the awkward questions you've been asked? The always awkward question is, what have you had done? Okay. So have you had... Have you had surgery? surgery? What yeah. is, you know, uh, yeah. those kinds of things. And and that's that's always an awkward question because that does not speak to transgenderedness or the transness of an individual. Hmm. There's a whole host of reasons why people may or may not have hmm. had medical procedures done. And it's Honestly, it's none of your business. I mean, what's in anybody's pants or under anybody's skirt yeah. isn't your business unless you're going to get intimate with that person or you're a medical provider and you've got to take care of something in that region. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. So I have a couple questions. Can I ask you a couple? Like, sure. You know, uh, I'm going to... One, one is, how did you learn to put on makeup? Oh, so this is a great little story. So, so I learned how to put on makeup. I was actually looking for work after I'd retired from the Air Force. And I was trying to figure out how to, how to be able to present to the world in a more appropriate, feminine, and yet professional. So, you know, what do you do? Well, you go find help. I went over to the Alta store in Rockville. <laughs> uh-huh. And I went into the store and one of the clerks says, oh, can I help you? I was looking very much male at the time. And I said, yeah, I, I'm a trans person. 
I am in transition and I need help learning how to put on makeup. The gal was like, I got the perfect person for you. And she went and grabbed a guy, gay, um, had really been big in the DC drag scene for many years, was well known in the DC drag scene. He comes over and he spent over an hour. Really? Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Showing me how to do it, helping me do it, having me do it. And and then and then he was like, anytime, come back. If mm. you need help or hints or anything else, come back and talk to me. I came back a couple of other times. And, and, and after that, I started then his practice, right? That's actually the easy part. So did your wife just completely hate sharing the bathroom with you now? Because you have like all your stuff and you're having blowing out your hair. And she's like, get out of here. Well, so, so in the house we live in now, we have we have a master bath. We barely both fit inside it at the same time. Yeah. Early, early on, right after we got married, we bought this antique dressing table that had been painted garishly and we stripped it and refinished it. And we've had that ever since. And that was always hers and it still is hers. Okay. And it's beautiful, beautiful old dressing table with a nice, lovely big mirror on it. And mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so she keeps her makeup stuff there and mine is in a drawer in the bathroom and kind of worked that out in that sense. So you know, we're, we're pretty amiable pair. And so it's not too, that's not good. too yeah. bad. Now here's the funny part. I was always the first person ready to go in the house. Right. I was always like, yeah. yeah. Okay. For going, I, I always try, honestly, I always try, but I'm almost always the last one ready now. Yeah, that so. Is so funny. Hey guys, it's Kumar Dixit, your concierge minister. I just wanted to interrupt for a moment and just invite you to pray with me or have me pray for you. You know, sometimes people just don't have the right words. Sometimes you're just so overwhelmed. You haven't prayed in a long time and you're like, man, I really need someone to pray for me. Do not hesitate to contact me at concierge You'll see on the front page, a tab for prayer click on it, send your prayer request. It goes to a group of people who are praying for you and I will continue to pray for you as well. So head over there to concierge I want to pray for you and click on the website. Trust me, we're covering you in prayer. So a couple more questions because my viewer is asking, not me, of course. Um, <laughs> I'm assuming, and I, I, I've only known you, Randy, as as a woman, so I, I don't know mm -hmm. you, you know, in, in your past life. But I'm assuming you made some changes to your voice, and oh yeah, you altered that. Can you tell me what you did? So, so when we look at men and women, there is pretty wide band of overlap, both physically, so stature and and all of those kinds of things and facial structures bone structures there are clearly some some differences that that evolve at puberty but but there's a lot more overlap than most people think mm -hmm. the voice is one of those things so there's a frequency range that is what we would term gender neutral mm. and if you can through active work, move your voice into the gender neutral range. And most people, most, not everybody, most people, a lot of people can do that at least 
trans women, not everybody can, but a lot of us can. And it just takes time and effort to, to do that. At this point, this is my voice. I would have to work at shifting back into the register that I, I used for most of my life. I'm not even sure if I can get there. I expect I can, but I'm not sure. So did you, did you see a vocal coach? My father is a musician. And growing up, I had some form of private music lessons from age five until I graduated from high school. And one of those was uh, voice lessons at one point. I at least have a basic understanding of of singing and vocal and controlling the vocal cords. Mm-hmm. And then there's some online resources that are free. I listen to them and then started using resources like my computer to work at getting the the pitch of my voice up and getting comfortable with that. And so I would record stuff and I would listen back and 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 work mm-hmm. at it that way. So so I have at least two or three friends in the last probably eight months, um, you know, you're just hanging out and chatting and it'll come up and they'll be like, oh, I have like this trans woman in my work now. And she's, you know, they're clearly like a dude, but I don't like, I don't even know what to say to them. I don't even know what to, what to you know, like what to address them. I don't even, you know, I'm like, okay, well, what <laughs> what would you say to any normal person? But I do understand the fear that that they have. What, what would you say to people who have trans people in their life, not close, but close enough because they're colleagues and they work with them? Um, what, what do you, how do you want them to, do you want them to acknowledge that they know that you are a trans person or do you want them just to acknowledge that you're a woman? So in my workplace, I expect to be treated and addressed as the woman that I am. Okay. Period. Right. Mm-hmm. Now that does that mean people don't know? Not necessarily. I know some people know. I know other people don't know. I expect there's a whole group of people that think they know, but they're <laughs> not really sure. I work in a work environment in a company that has very clear policies about how we deal with diversity mm. under the the policy of our company. In the workplace, if we were not actually friends, it would be inappropriate for somebody to bring up the topic with me. Okay. Yeah. Other than in this setting, you know, if they if they sure. brought up the topic in a broader conversation of diversity and, and it just happened to have trans in it, not mm-hmm. specifically asking me about myself or something like that, that would that would be fair. That would be an, uh, a fair topic. But to to address me and go. So are you trans? That would not be considered an appropriate mm-hmm. question. Yeah, that's that's excellent education uh, for, for sure. That said, here, here's the reality. You know, people who are transitioning, just be just be as gracious as you can. If you think you're struggling with them transitioning, guess what? It's like a hundred times harder what they're doing than Mm. your puny little struggle. I'm sorry, inside your own little head about get over it. They're a human being, treat them like a human being, address them with the pronouns and the name that they want to be addressed with. Do you want somebody walking up to you and going, you know, Hey Bob, you know, or Sally or or whatever else you're Kumar. That's right. 
right? Yeah. Your pronouns are he, him. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's, um, that's. If you're, if you're working with somebody who is actively in transition and they have changed pronouns and they have changed the, the their given name, I get that that's a challenge. Do the due diligence. If, if you want to be the, the big person, the person who's perceived as kind, and if that's who you are and supportive, step up to the plate and know that it's going to be a challenge for you, but take on the challenge to get the pronouns right, to get the name right. Make sure that in emails and in everything, you get the name, the pronouns, and the spellings correct. Yeah. I mean, you don't know how huge that is if you're that trans person on the other end of an email. Yeah. It's it's gigantic. And I would say that, you know, for somebody who spends a, a great deal with this community, you know, trans folks are so forgiving and willing to help you learn and educate. Somebody's got to educate everybody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember probably a month or so ago, I was with a, a trans male and I referred to them as she to somebody else. And then I caught myself and I just stopped. I said, I'm sorry, I haven't asked you your pronouns. What do you go by? And they said, I go by he, he, him. And I was like, okay, in my mind, I was like, this is going to be really, really hard shift, but I have to like be intentional about that. He was very forgiving as far as my transgression. So, so here's the thing on, on stuff like that. One of the big easy ways, if you're struggling with pronouns is use use a name. It's easier to use somebody's name mm -hmm. and get that right, at least yeah. initially, than getting pronouns right, yeah. honestly. That's, I appreciate that. So you and I both were raised in a very fundamental subcategory of Christianity, you know, very, very conservative and not a lot of room for um, LGBTQ community, even just L and G, you know, let, let alone anything else. How How is it, Randy, that you are still a Christian? You're still a believer in God. You still, from what I you know, know about you, are, are still involved in your church. Um, how have you been able to do that with all of the kind of just judgment and criticism that that your community has had? So I, I'll start here. You know, as a child growing up, I grew up in 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 a, a ghetto, an Adventist ghetto. But I grew up in a home where I had parents that were really, really wonderful parents. But they were thinkers, right? They weren't mm. rigid. They were thinkers. They were progressive in their day, and they were certainly progressive in that community. And the people that we associated with, the adults, the families that we associated with deeply in that community, for the most part, they were thinkers, right? And they were pushing the envelope. They taught us as kids growing up to question, right? Mm. To question our teachers in, in Adventist school, to question them about stuff in Bible all the way through high school. And so the idea of being able to question and dialogue with God was never foreign to me. In fact, it was part and parcel of how I was raised in a Christian experience. Although I grew up with the very rigid doctrinal stances and structures and the very rigid community standards and expectations, 
there was this fundamental tool set that underlied that and a and a fundamental permission to do that and that became in conjunction with the knowledge of scripture that we gained growing up in seventh adventist education from kindergarten all the way through a couple of college degrees enabled me to actually have that inquiry with god mm. over the course of probably decades really when you get right down to it as that conversation changed um, from a very small child uh, until adulthood, when I res resolved that conflict of faith in God and doctrinal belief and adherence within a a institutional church structure, and and you can go to all the churches that we participated in over the course of my adult life, and. Um, I don't think people would say I was a troublemaker, but people would say I was quite unconventional mm -hmm. and that I was stretching the communities that I participated in, in very much high level leadership positions in these yeah. local church communities. And so I was stretching the church, not trying to break it, but stretching the community to think bigger and think in different ways and, and with different tools. And so that's how I kind of have managed to navigate that space. I mean, I will guarantee you, I, I certainly have views of God and scripture and, and all of those things, which are in significant variance with the tradition we grew up with. That doesn't mean I have thrown out the community, which it is where my life has existed for almost all of my life, really. So how does God feel about you? God thinks I'm great. You know, um, that, you know, when I came to that conclusion in my probably late twenties or very, very early thirties, that, that God was happy, was okay. That God just, this is who you are. And so this is who you are and you're just fine the way you are. I, you know, that God knows the process of human reproduction and how the planet works and, and what those potential result field is like. And I'm just part of the result field. Mm. So it doesn't make it sinful. It doesn't make it destructive. It doesn't make it harmful. We can use who we are as a person, regardless of whether you're cis, straight, white, male, female, gay, trans, bi, whatever, we can use all of those characteristics in negative ways, but we can also use them in positive ways. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. when I figured that part out, the relationship with God part became fairly simple. What, much of the work that I do with concierge minister is what I call poor spiritual self-esteem. And I'm just blown away by how high your spiritual self-esteem is. I mean, it, it really is an incredible God-given gift, I think. I, you know, I think by nature, I was blessed with a fairly positive outlook on the world and life. Um, that's probably served me really, really well. Yeah. But I've been blessed with a, as a trans person, I have been blessed with a a journey, particularly somebody who grew up in a very conservative faith tradition. I've been blessed with a journey through this process that honestly, I, I, all of the myriad trans people that I know, I, I've, my journey has probably been one of the smoothest, best supported. And that doesn't mean there's not struggle. It just means 
I, I mean, I have my trans friends that remind me, and, and appropriately so, that my journey is not like the average trans person. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh. I think I think for sure. Final question. I I'm the chaplain of Kinship International, which is a international um, LGBTQ organization. And over the years, um, parents would call me in distress because their kid is gay. You know, my kid just came out to me. They're gay. You know, what do I do? And and I love the fact that they're actually seeking um, support from a pastor and they want to find a way to love their kid despite you know any of the decisions that they're kind of you know going through one of the things i've seen a major major transition has been um, less phone calls about gay kids and more phone calls about my kid thinks they're a transgender or they are trans transgender what do i do so what what would your advice be to parents in particular as as their adolescent is kind of going through this, you know, mixture of kind of wondering who they are. So, so the first thing, do what my parents did. I love you. We love you. We love you like you are. You're always welcome. And it doesn't matter how you show up, mm. but show up. Mm. Mm. That's the first thing. And that's the most important thing. And if, if you can get to that starting point, now we're like 80% of the way, it's going to be hard. It's going to be a struggle. You're probably going to need to go do a whole lot of learning, which at this point, there's a huge volume of resources available. Like, like everything on the internet, there's good resources and there's bad resources. Uh, identifying which of those can be a challenge, particularly when you come from a faith tradition, where are the good resources? The good resources are, are like with anything where you're going to have a, um, a social interaction associated with it. A good psychologist who is skilled with transgender, and if they're youth, transgender youth or transgender children, finding one of the major, typically uh, university medical center-based programs that works with transgender children and youth don't be afraid of the idea that that your your child is still your child. It's not like they're fundamentally different and they're not going to in all likelihood be different. They're going to look probably a whole lot different over the course of some period of time. But you know some of those things that your child may you have may have thought your child has been struggling with behaviorally or academically. Mm. You get this into the right place. And suddenly those things will go away and you'll be like, oh my goodness. Mm. There are lots of good narrative books that are out there that tell stories of people, of transgender people and transgender children's lives and their parents and how that worked. Finding those resources may not be super, super easy, but it's not that hard. Um, if you can find a group um, that is supportive of parents of transgender children that are supportive of trans right. children that yeah. aren't trying to change their kid to be something else. Yeah. The reality is, is if you have a four, five, six, seven year old child who is staunch and persistent in saying, I am, I'm not a boy. I am not a girl. Guess what? They probably high, very high probability. They've got it right. So finding the help to help, you and your children navigate that space so that your child can live fully for as much of their life 
their fullest self. Mm. Why wouldn't we as parents want to do that? Yeah. Why wouldn't we be motivated to do that? Yeah, that's amazing. I, you know, one of the stories that I always, always, always share when I'm meeting with um, somebody in the rainbow community is the story of the prodigal son, because it's such a great analogy of how great God's love is for us. Um, and, and what I love about this story is that the father never expects or tells the son to change. He doesn't ask him to return the money. He doesn't ask him to repent for everything he did. When he sees the son in the distance, he starts running towards him to embrace him. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I think that is such a great analogy of how we as parents should be reacting to our kids to be just loving them because of who they are. Yeah. My favorite kind of scriptural story is in Acts, Acts of the Apostles, let's call it by its full name, because Mm -hmm. it's the apostles after, you know, the first part's about Pentecost. And then everything after that is what they're going and doing and what they're experiencing. And it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Mm. And, and the reality is, is, you know, an angel comes to him and he sends him down to this road that's going to nowhere. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't even know why he's going, but he goes and he's watching all the people pass by and the Ethiopian eunuch goes and the spirit says, go and catch it. And the Bible says he runs to catch up, right? Yeah. And he gets up there. And ultimately the story that story coupled with what Christ says about mm-hmm. eunuchs back to Isaiah 56, mm-hmm. all of that, you, you draw that thread and granted, we don't really have eunuchs in the sense that, that they were understood at that time. But yeah. the reality is this, they were oddities. They were the gender oddities of their time. Fully, absolutely fully the most one of the most spectacular stories of what happens is that story of philip mm-hmm. in all of the early christian church that's recorded yeah right he goes he baptizes him and whoop, he's whisked away and then we can read about philip whisked away to somewhere else and he's now you know literally by the spirit yeah if the early christian writers went to that much effort to include that story about inclusion mm. I'm sorry, the modern church is totally off the mark Mm. in terms of talking about inclusion of gender and sexual minorities. And that's not to say that I am advocating for a loose moral standard. It's Mm. saying that we are who we are and God is totally okay with who we are. And he's okay with us if we live in committed relationships, loving who we love. Let's just leave it right there because that was beautiful. I, I I love that. Randy, thank you so much for joining me today. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I mean, this is a really great educational piece that I really hope um, kind of just expands and broads people's understanding. And I really appreciate your courage for coming out and talking to me today. Oh, thank you so much for spending time with me. Thanks for listening to the Concierge Minister Podcast. If you want to learn more about growing in your faith or looking for an online faith community for support while you're on your journey, please visit conciergeminister.com or send us an email at conciergeminister at gmail.com. Don't forget to click the subscribe button and give us a five-star rating. If you find this podcast helpful, please tell your friends about us. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, go and live your best life.